From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The new Plum Book is out from the Government Publishing Office. It lists about 9,000 openings for the Biden administration to fill. Federal News Network reports the GPO has an online version and a mobile version, too. A 3% pay raise for uniformed militaries in effect tonight. The increase was part of the National Defense Authorization Act President Trump vetoed. The bill became law anyway when the House voted to override 322 to 87 and the Senate voted to override 81 to 13. The Army Research Lab will debut two supercomputers the first quarter of this year. The ARL says the computers will drive more than 23 petaflops of capability when they go online by midway this fiscal year. The Army will name the computers Gene and Kay after two women who were part of the original team of programmers on the world's first general purpose computer. Federal agencies are still learning how badly the solar winds breach has impacted them. C4ISRnet reports Navy Chief Information Officer Aaron Weiss says the breach has the Defense Department's full attention. Danelle Barrett is former Deputy CIO of the Navy and former Director of the current operations at U.S. Cyber Command. And thanks for joining me. What's the implication here for learning how far the bad guys have gotten into uh, DOD systems? Yeah, I think that the, the piece about the detect is still a struggle for everybody, both within DOD and commercial industry. Um, you know, people are trying to determine um, how far this adversary actually burrowed into the network, because it's not just the solar winds compromise itself, the initial compromise of the uh, software that provides infrastructure updates to networks, for example. It's the, okay, once they got in, did they escalate privileges? Did they install other backdoors or trapdoors? Did they um, uh, change logs or change data? Um, and that would be, there's some insidious things there that could have been done. Um, while it looks like sort of an espionage campaign right now, there's just no um, uh, full understanding yet of what was impacted. And I think that's, you know, across all, all agencies, anybody who was using this software or who had systems connected to networks using this software. Because remember, if your system was connected to a network that was affected, you could be affected as well, depending upon the permissions across those uh, networks. Is that potentially the biggest danger here, uh, Admiral, that we don't know what we don't know because we're still trying to figure out forensically what was connected to what and who had this running where? Yeah, I think that's the, always the biggest concern from a cyber defender uh, point of view is what actually happened and then what happened to the data. I mean, these guys, this was a pretty sophisticated attack. I mean, they used block lists to um, make sure that forensic things couldn't be done. They installed teardrop backdoors and things like that They uh, to avoid having logs um uh, you know, to, to affect what was logged and what could be looked at. Um, they installed some tools that red team folks use. So they were pretty sophisticated and not just uh, throwing a little tool out there. I mean, they had a kind of a well thought out plan about how they were going to, once they were in, use those other advantages they have to, to branch out. And that's the hard part because, you know, if you can start altering logs or um, uh, avoiding detection in other ways, then it makes it really, really hard for defenders, even with the best tools, to see what they've done. And the important part on any network is to understand what's normal. 
So what is your normal state of affairs? If you've got a really good network, you've got a really, really good understanding of your network, then you can see with the help of uh, more advanced tools and AI and things, anomalies that are just above the waterline, right? Um, if you don't have good tools, now you're in a real hurt locker because you can't even identify now what, what's been compromised. And the insidious part about that could be, it's not like they're gonna exfiltrate, say something big, large and large and loud, eight, you know, eight gigabits of data or something. What's more insidious is if they go in and change some of your data. Now you are making a bad decision, either from a military standpoint or a corporate standpoint on information you believe to be valid and true and you know have confidence in, but should you? And you know, it kind of brings up the story to me. I don't know if you remember back in 1983, uh, Stanislav Petrov, the lieutenant colonel who avoided World War III, um, because um, he was sitting in his command center that day and he saw an incoming ICBM missile from the United States, followed immediately by five more. And he didn't trust the data he was seeing. He said, that is not any scenario I've ever been trained on. That is not anything that I've ever seen in any of our doctrine or tactics, techniques, and procedures. So he didn't do what he was supposed to do, which was, you know, launch nuclear weapon back. I mean, there's no, there's no dip in your toe in the nuclear weapon game, right? And so he waited 28 minutes, which was what impact would have been, and it didn't happen. And thank God he did. But are we smart enough today to, to question the data that we see on our operational and business systems to say, okay, has that data been changed? Are those data right? And how do we do that when we have so much data now? Um, so Protecting our data at that lowest layer is becoming increasingly important wherever it is, whether it's in the cloud or in a standalone premise system or something like that. That's why the zero trust architecture that NIST is putting out, um, and they put out the SP-800-207 um, in August, um, and DISA is working on their version for the, um, relying on that for the DOD, for example. But that zero trust architecture where you don't, implicitly trust any asset or user based on a location or something else, but that you're using really strong authentication, really strong authorization, and really strong identity management throughout to, to make sure that data are protected at that lowest layer. Admiral, we just have a minute or so left, but I think of all of the things that you said there, what was most troubling to me was the level of sophistication here implies a strategic plan on the part of the adversary that's the same as warfare. And it strikes me that that's the way we, if we're not already thinking about our cyber defenses that way, we need to start. Am I reading that right? Yeah, I would say. I mean, they're attributing this, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo attributed it to APT-29, which is Cozy Bear Russia. Um, and we've known for a long time Russia, China, Iran, there's many countries who are, who are after us from a cyber security, excuse me, a cyber offensive um, posture. And, you know, I think as a nation, we also need to establish some cyber red lines. I mean, we have nuclear red lines. We have Geneva Convention warfare red lines. But our cyber red lines are a little squishy still. And, um, you know, what constitutes an act of war and what constitutes that if, for example, they attack critical infrastructure, which is privately owned, you know, so it, it, a lot of work still needs to be done by the Biden administration coming in. I think they recognize that. And, you know, how do we define cyber warfare? Danelle, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you here. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Up next, filling the ranks of the senior executive service. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a plan to build the top ranks of the career workforce. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. New numbers from the Office of Personnel Management show about 8% of senior executive service jobs are empty. More people leaving and fewer people moving up to SES jobs are the reasons. Danny Werfels, Managing Director and Partner at Boston Consulting Group and former Acting Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. Danny, welcome. It's good to see you. What does a healthy pipeline of SESers look like? How should somebody go about developing that? Well, I mean, there's a couple of different sources for, for SES. Obviously, you start inside your organization and you've got up and coming leaders, uh, you know, GS15s, GS14s and managers that are in training. And it's really important to understand where the talent is in your organization and promote their growth and leadership and get those individuals excited about what they're gonna be able to achieve in terms of impact uh, once they once they ascend to the SES. So you start there, but you also want to look outside the organization as well. And we may not be able to fill all those vacancies you just referenced just inside. And there's huge opportunities to bring people in from the private sector and elsewhere uh, and entice them with the impact you can have in public service at an SES job. I want to look at the enterprise-wide implications in a moment, but within an organization, not every person that is a member of those uh, groups that you just described is necessarily a candidate to be a member of the SES, are they? No, I mean, we have programs in the government that work effectively at, um, at identifying potential SES candidates. We have something called the SES Candidacy Development Program where early on, I, I participated in that uh, many years ago, where as a GS-14 or as a GS-15, you can see what it takes to go through the process and go through the interviews and fill out the forms. And, and that's one way to, uh, to determine uh, it. But th there are other individuals that don't have to go through the program that can make it to SES. And then you're right, you have individuals that that um, can be important contributors to the government, but may not be the right fit for a leadership position or an SES, and that's okay too. The reality is though, organizations really have to understand their talent, their pipeline, and the path that these individuals are on so that we're working towards a healthy future for each organization. What does this look like from an enterprise-wide perspective? What do you think the role of OPM should be moving forward, Danny? to help these organizations build out their SES core? I think it's gotta be a, a, a fundamental priority of, the, of OPM going forward to think about how do we make agencies, all the agencies have a priority to look at the state of their SES and figure out what needs to be done to close any gaps, whether there's gaps in terms of vacancies, skill gaps, what training do these uh, individuals uh, need? Um, what's their morale? What's their engagement? I mean, in many ways, the SES represents the, uh, the heart and soul of many of our organizations. And we really have to understand uh, how to bring them to their highest and best performance. Um, and this needs to be a priority of each agency, but also OPM can really help lead the charge, make sure it's understood across human resources offices across government that this is an important priority. I don't know if it was your intent or not, Danny, but reading between the lines there, it sounds to me like you're suggesting that OPM might be the most important or one of the most important organizations to the Biden administration because what you just outlined there is just the tip of the iceberg regarding what has to change 
not just as a result of the Trump administration, but as the result of the change of the workforce over the past 15, 20 years for the new administration. Am I reading too much into what you said there? Or do you see this position, the OPM director position, as that important? Uh, you're, not, you're not reading too much into it. I mean, it sounds obvious sometimes, but sometimes it's important to point out the obvious. But people uh, has to be an, a huge focus of a high-performing government. All the things the future Biden administration is going to want to achieve are going to be dependent on whether they have the right people in place with the right skills and the right tools to get it done, whether it's climate change or immigration or, uh, or any of the many, many priorities that, that he and um, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris have been talking about. It's not going to get done without the workforce. And how do we make the right investments to empower the workforce to get these things done? It's not just important for, for the, the future president. It's important for the American people that their government works well. I've said it time and time again, whether you believe in big government or small government, you want the government to work. And I often tell people, think about that moment. You get on the plane. It's about to take off. You're with your family. And you're thinking about those air traffic controllers. And do you want them to have the right training, the right morale, the right circumstances to succeed in their job of keeping you safe? Well, that requires investment in people. And that's the way I, I want us to be thinking about the government going forward. Less than a minute left, Danny. What do you think happened to the original intent of the senior executive service? And that was that they would move from agency to agency and sow good government principles throughout the government. That's kind of gone away. What do you think happened? Why do you think that happened? It's a great question. And I love the point. Like the SES was supposed to be a moving cohort of expert managers that at a moment's notice could seize on a particular emerging crisis or priority. And that just never manifested itself. And I think what happened is, is that we kind of lost sight of that early on and people got comfortable in their, in their jobs and stayed for 20, 30, 40 years in the same SES job. And many of those people had extraordinary impact and don't want to diminish their service in any way, shape or form. And it's okay if an SESer stays in seat for 10, 20, 30 years, if that's the right answer. But as part of OPM's future endeavor, they should be thinking about a more mobile SES workforce to make sure we're getting back to that original vision. Because as priorities emerge, you want to put your best talent on it. Danny Werfel, thanks very much as always. Appreciate you being on. Up next, big ideas for acquisition reform in the new year. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the Biden administration can do to jumpstart procurement. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The Biden administration has not named its acquisition team yet, but it can get ahead of the acquisition curve with three ideas from a Trump administration leader. Alan Thomas is chief operating officer at IntelliBridge and former commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at GSA. Alan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You're writing about these three ideas, and I think the first one gets at the heart of the nonpartisan nature of acquisition, because something that, that used to teed up and that people from GSA, acquisition leaders of both uh, parties have been telling me for years, I wish we could get to this, and that's negotiating prices at the task order level. Why is that a big deal, Alan? So uh, first of all, Happy New Year to you, uh, Francis. Glad, glad to be with you again. So 
it's it's a big deal uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I think actually the the the, um, the most important part of it is it's going to save a lot of time for both government contracting officers and for folks in industry. So when you negotiate a master contract like a GWAC or a MAC, a multiple award contract, and establish prices at the master contract level, those prices often don't mean very much, and it's not really useful for the government CEO or for industry to spend a lot of time worrying about what those prices are, right? Prices are established at the task order level when there are real requirements and real business on the line. So I think one, it would be a huge time saver. Two, I think it will drive some additional competition and price competitiveness at that uh, at that task order level. So that's you know the two two big reasons why that ought to get done. I know you had you had Emily Murphy on the GSA administrator, and she, you know she said that was one of her one of her big items that she felt like was unfinished business. And I think it's an easy win for uh, for the new leaders when they come in to pick up and kind of dri drive that one home to the finish line. I, I'm certainly no acquisition expert like you are, but people that are have told me that they believe that that and the schedules consolidation are two things that at least got moved significantly forward that a lot of people thought would never happen. The second idea that you're writing about, Alan, is, and you put it this way, change the conversation on e-commerce to make it more relevant and tie it to the Build Back Better agenda. That's the title that President-elect Biden has, has attached to what he wants to do. How do you connect those two things effectively, Alan? So if you remember Section 846 in the 2018 National Defense Authorization Act about uh, purchasing through e-commerce portals, right, there was a lot of buzz around that. Certainly when, when, I, when I was in uh, my role there at, uh, at GSA, we held a number of industry days. GSA eventually started a pilot the Air Force has gone off and done done some things, right? There was a lot of a lot of talk around, you know, is this an Amazon takeover of, of federal micro purchasing? I think it's been it's been sort of quiet. I think uh, in some ways, kind of curiously quiet. I think really, you know, the times have changed, and the sort of of the moment idea would be, how do you take that six or seven billion dollars in in what's called tail spend in the federal government and really open it up and connect small businesses who are struggling because of the pandemic? How do you connect them into that in, into that pool of spend, right? So that feels like it's an opportunity for a little bit of a pivot for the new administration to bring some to bring some focus on it. One, it's great for small businesses, and two, it sort of ties into the to the to the recovery agenda that I think uh, that I think is going to be really important in the new administration. What it sounds like you're suggesting there is that we focus less on the mechanism and focus more on the money. Is that what you're getting at? That, that, that's right, right? I mean, I think initially the play was, was, was thought of sort of as a data play, right? Like, let's get all that spend running through uh, some channels that the government can get its arms around and then figure out how to, how to consolidate that spend. I still think long-term that's important, but really now the most important thing, right, is how do you open that spend up to, to some small businesses who might not have otherwise had access to the government, but it could be a little bit of a, could, could be a, little bit of a lifeline to them, right? And if you think about the innovation that's happening in e-commerce right now, it's happening with folks like Shopify and Google really leveling the playing field, trying to help small businesses not always have to go through uh, some of the big aggregators out there. That could be an exciting place for the government to be. And it also, I think, really lines up well with the sort of Main Street USA agenda that the new administration is going to have. All right. I want to come back to that if we have time. But the third idea, as you write, is expanding the use of assisted acquisition services for the government's largest and most complex buys. What are you getting at there, Alan? So if you think about it, Francis, right, for the government's largest and most complex buys, it makes sense to have people who have specific expertise and who, and who get to do those buys a number of times over the course of a year. So oftentimes in-house contracting shops at agencies you know, will only handle some of those big complex buys once every five years, right? 
assisted acquisition teams at GSA and at other places like at NITAC within NIH handle those kind of buys routinely. And I think ultimately they come up with better acquisition strategies. It's shown that they save that it saves time, right? On average, an assisted acquisition procurement for a big, large buy is about six months shorter than an in-house agency buy. And the uh, and and the chance for protest is significantly less once you know once you get to award. My my example here, and I mean you know this is a hypothetical, so you can you know you can't really argue against it. Or, um, but if you think about the Jedi procurement within DoD, right? My sense is that DoD had started with a, a team of assisted acquisition experts that were outside the agency and sort of worked with them to refine the requirements and the acquisition strategy. That they'd be in the execution phase right now instead of in court. Uh, less than a minute left, Alan. I want to go back to e-commerce. What straightens that landscape out for the mechanism? I know you're thinking about the money, rightfully so, but that, that landscape, despite the efforts of a lot of great people in all over the government, is really kind of uh, at a loss right now. Yeah, so I, you know, I, that's an area where I don't think we need any, we don't need any more legislation. I think what, what we just need is to allow, uh, allow the GSA and the agencies really a little bit of freedom to go out uh, and experiment and kind of try things and see what see, see what works right I wouldn't uh, again I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't write any any new legislation there um, it's a fast-moving market right so if you think about when that original legislation was created in 2018 to now there's sort of already been an 18-month innovation cycle there right and we're you know we're, we're, we're gonna fall a little bit further behind if we don't sort of get 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 in the game there so I'm interested to see what the what the pilot from GSA yields and I hope you know hope that'll be a focus in 2021 but it just it just feels like an area where there could be a lot more uh, a lot more experimentation a lot more testing and pilots and uh, and and things like that and I'd, li I'd like to see the new administration sort of pick that up and again really with a focus on how to get small businesses into the market and connect them to that tailspin Alan Thomas thanks as always appreciate it Thank you, Francis. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. And you get a preview of every one of our shows by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. Back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.